Welcome to our podcast, Land and People, where we interview people with ancestral or professional ties to the land. I'm Melissa Kimera. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I'm Clay Charnick. I am an extension faculty at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management, studying ecosystems and fire ecology. And as we say on most of these shows, the views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or our funders. We really try to just keep uh, an open space here to share perspectives, share opinions, and we want to honor um, people's perspectives and really be able to create a space for that. So please also consider rating and reviewing us. We love hearing what you guys have to say. Please jump on Apple or Spotify, wherever the heck you're listening to this thing and, and tell us. let us know. Yeah. I'll give you an example. We have a great one here from Kay Erzbach and it's a five star. Five stars. <laughs> Which says, wonderful listening as a fellow conservationist working in Hawaii. It's wonderful to learn more about the people I work alongside, their life stories and perspectives, things not shared during work meetings. Yes, they're not in the work <laughs> meeting mode. They add a layer of insight and perspective that is so incredibly uplifting and invigorating. It's been a joy to listen to episodes during my maternity leave, often while hiking with my four-month-old, thinking of all the people and places I want my keiki to learn from. So mahalo nui for that wonderful review. Yeah, thanks so much. So as you know, if you've listened to our last interview, we switched a bit going from the sciences to the humanities. And this one today is our very first visual artist. I'm so excited because there's so much overlap between what Leland Miano, who has been doing this work for like five decades at least, yeah. there's so much overlap between what he's done and interested in and what I do also as a visual artist. And so if you were around in Honolulu in 2019, he was the recipient of the Golden Hibiscus Award for the Honolulu Biennial, in which he did this incredible installation. And we'll talk a bit about that in the podcast. But he works in stone. He works in landscape design. We're so fortunate. To, to have grabbed him for this. And it was really, I would say, through the love that my wife has for this man and the respect that she has for his work uh, and just him as a human. He's really made this world that we kind of think about conservation and the work up Malka with snails and plants. Not everyone gets to experience that. And how do we bring this into everyday life? Transport people there without actually transporting them there, right? So right. through garden work, through landscape design, mm -hmm. through his art, uh, he really has made an enormous impact on beautifying places, but in this really meaningful way that that is is purposefully connecting folks to to their home. He's so observant with snails and plants. I mean, you'd think he was a biologist, really, with his knowledge of all of that. One note about this interview is just part in the audio quality. We had the great fortune of interviewing Leland at Bishop Museum. And so the audio, audio quality isn't as great as we typically get, but just bear with us. Um, and, uh, and it's worthwhile. Yeah. It's really only the first 30 minutes. Yeah. It was a great opportunity. Uh, and, and, and then the drive, right. So we oh, kind right. of were, we're on the road. We were <laughs> yes. at Bishop. Melissa got to take a car ride with them. Right. 
I do. I need to mention also that my dear friend, Francesca Dubrock, who's the chief curator at Anchorage Museum, just happened to be there that morning. And she had some amazing questions and comments. Yeah, she was. We were really fortunate to have her join us for the whole the whole day, really. And, yeah, um, it was great. Thank you, Fran. For Thanks, it. Francesca, for the great <laughs> questions and, and bearing with us. Yes. So with that, here is our next guest, Leland Miano of Honolulu on Oahu. Did you become interested in landscape architecture from a young age? Were you dabbling in other art forms before? I mean, what what really pushed you towards towards wanting to work with the land in order to create art pieces? The very first memory I ever had was touching this plant in my parents' yard at Waipawa. I was three years old, mm-hmm. and that's the first image I had. But I'm very observant and very curious, and I didn't know what its name was, okay? And I didn't know for decades what that plant was named, but I had a clear vision of what that plant was. I can see it now, you know, me touching that, that flower from three years old. Mm-hmm. And I can draw it now, and I know what it is, a calanchoe. You know, an alien uh, yeah. plant, <laughs> but it has nice buds, and yeah. you know it's very interesting to a three-year-old. It's very fortunate that you know I could draw very realistically, scientifically, and do all that kind of stuff yeah. uh, from yeah. a young age. Yeah. yeah, but at some point you're like you're interested in these plants and animals, and you know, yes. and the land. And it's it's a whole other endeavor study landscape architecture. I can imagine. It's right? all like, it's all interrelated. Right. Though, so what what specifically drew you to that practice as opposed to like becoming a biologist or you know was it like practical? You're like okay, no. I need to remember. It was, it was <laughs> totally serendipitous. Okay. I mean, I was looking at this plant at Ward Garden Shop, at mm-hmm. the, the Gems Garden Shop. Yeah. Looking at this plotosarium in this garden shop. And this other guy was next to me looking at the same plant and he said, do you like that plant? He says, yeah, I collect those plants. And we're looking at that plant and and, and, uh, and he said, well, maybe you can buy it and then we'll split it, you know? And so he said, yeah, that sounds good. And then the manager, the manager of the garden shop at the time said, no, it's not for sale. So anyways, I met three important, you know, I met two important people. And the first guy was a landscape architect that did uh, the airport, Halikulani Hotel, Hillside oh, Village. And he told me what he did and said, you can make a living. <laughs> that's a job. <laughs> you know, so that, that's basically me. how. It, and he was the one that got me involved with Roberto because he says, you know, after he, we got to know each other, we, we found out we we're like kindred spirits. right? Mm. So then he said, this guy in Brazil is going around the world collecting ideas for this woman, Odette Montero, and that was Roberto Burley Marx. Mm-hmm. So I met him and we hit it off really well right from the beginning as well. Okay. And so I went down to Brazil and did a lot oh, of stuff right. with him. Wow. Oh. Saw destruction like I've never seen before on a scale I've never seen before or mm-hmm. since. Deforestation and... Yes. Yeah. Complete, this wonderful biodiversity in the Atlantic Forest. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it was... Yeah. It was a great experience, but also so, so sad. And me, being a lover of the forest, an endemic forest of, of Hawaii, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I'd like to use landscape architecture 
as a way to, well, I can only call myself a landscape designer because I didn't go into, I didn't specifically study landscape architecture. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a landscape designer. So I uh, said, well, I want urban man to get some kind of relationship yeah. with nature yeah. and this gardens mm -hmm. can help. I see. Yeah, and so see. that's that's basically it, you know, as mm -hmm. far as how I specifically got to garden design. Garden design. Some people know me as re snail researchers. Some mm -hmm. people know me as an artist. Mm -hmm. They don't think I'm the same person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm always in different, diff wear different hats, right? So, yeah, some people, they go, oh, you do that? They have no idea, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, at the time that you kind of make those relationships about, oh my gosh, I could kind of make a living doing this. You had already at that point been exploring. Yeah, and doing art all the time. Art because, as well. Because mm -hmm. I, I did a lot of, um, I would have been a biologist maybe if I didn't have such a bad science teacher. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? Who will remain unnamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I, in my lab book, I did the whole dissection of the bufo. Yeah. And, uh, and every stage was illustrated and as I went through the whole thing. Right. I was talking to Talia yesterday yeah. about my experience with the tsunami. Yeah, in this is, she yeah, said you have to tell the story. What happened and where were you? Yeah, so I, I lived in Neville Beach in 1960 and um, I lived back in the day when your parents go, go outside, play until it's dark and yeah. come home. You know, so I, I did. I took full advantage of that freedom. And one day I was at the beach and I saw the ocean retreat like just like a fast low tide. And I went all the way to the breakers and I went, wow, and fish are flopping on the sand and I was going down into these um, into these caves and seeing all this like polyp coral that, that lives in the dark. And uh, just amazing that playing with the baby shark and uh, and finding shells and and uh, I was five years old and so and then I came in and I saw the water coming back in a little fast you know but not not terribly fast and so it went on like that that was my memory my uncle lived right on the shore there for years and one day I asked him, have you ever seen the low tide so low that everything's dry? And he said, no. And it's always about three feet deep over here. And he said, well, I've seen that, you know. And then uh, I had commission, and it was Arthur Erickson, and he did his beach house in Mokulia. So I did the garden. The owner of that property had a dinner party one day. And Dr. Gerard Fryer was a guest. And so I said, oh, you're with the Tsunami Warning Research Center, you know? And, and I said, you know, I had this experience. He says, oh, I know exactly what that was. It was uh, the tsunami in 1960, the Chilean earthquake. Wow. And, uh, wow. And, he, and I said, yeah, but I didn't see it like a wave, you know? It mm -hmm. just, just went out and then it came back in slowly. But he said, well, the oscillations in Hilo is every 12 and a half minutes, and in Eva Beach is over an hour. Oh, wow. So I had a very different experience tsunami-wise. Right. But that same year is when a bird flew into my parents' window during a storm. I had to lie for three days. And everyone told me I was a moth, but you know, I'm five years old, right? I knew it was a bird. It had feathers and a long beak. And 
and I, I drew it, and uh, it's uh, Ikea Loa for sure. Oh. You know? No way. Yeah. Okay, well, we have to, t- for our listeners, we have to describe what an Ikea Loa is. So, this is a now extinct honeycreeper with a long curved bill, right? That you actually got to see one on yes, the Yes, I felt I had it. In my head. <laughs> I had it. Kept amazing. it alive for three days, but no one gave me any advice as to how to keep oh it alive. No one was interested in seeing it. You know, I called the museum. And, yeah. You know, and yeah, they, they thought, they said, oh, it's a moth. <laughs> Do you remember what color it was? Oh, it was green. green? And, yeah, green yeah. and had black you know, oh. markings by its eyes. I mean, Very these, these birds with these curved bills are sort of mythic for those of us who track Hawaiian birds because you only ever see pictures of them. So that's amazing that you get to see. Well, it's amazing that you said mythic because I see a lot of snails mm-hmm. that people say are mythic, but if you don't know collect it or take a photograph yeah. of it, it, it's almost like it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah so true. we call those apocryphal. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and then that. I mean, vision to bring these species, which aren't, people weren't using them in landscape design. Uh People aren't, they're not around us anymore. And so, I mean, the benefit and the value of having these, creating these spaces to connect people to is uh, really, yeah, it's so important. It is extremely important. And, you know, like a lot of, um, Hawaii is known for tourism and all this military but you know the people that will save it are the ones that live here yeah. and they have a love for the physical space mm-hmm. and i've seen so many people they're so involved and then they're gone you know mm-hmm. that doesn't right. that's not helpful yeah <laughs> but you mentioned your memory of touching this um, flower bud when mm-hmm. you were 3 years old which i think is just such an incredible memory to have is kind of the starting point of your entire life and I'm just curious how your practice, you mentioned like the importance of connecting younger people to these types of experiences. What are the spaces and ways that you try and facilitate that for you? Well, folks? this, this yeah. canoe that I, mm-hmm. I had a, over a hundred volunteers and including another serendipitous circumstance where Midpack Preschool mm-hmm. helped me to build that mm. and they're little guys you know they're five, three and five years old and uh and i said yeah sure i need all the help i can I get so so awesome. so for, <laughs> for the duration of building which is over a month uh they came every week and i guess there were about 30 of them and they would um they would do like sorting the sticks, you know. We had to we had to sort the sticks to and and take off leaves, and then put the the sticks in piles into, you know, however however many uh, sizes I thought I needed, because we harvested 40 tons of strawberry guava and uh, inkberry and uh, rose apple out of Homalhia to wow. clear for Talia's planting, wow. <laughs> and. Uh, and get rid of an invasive species at the same time. But uh, I used 20 tons to build this canoe. And then the the lines are actually tea leaf lay. Mm. Uh, oh my goodness, it's so beautiful. You know, and uh, yeah, but anyways, these kids would, uh, they were just so energetic and they'd put piles of stuff and sort them out and the teachers were helping them. I made these canoe forms for them to fill out, mm-hmm. and, and they, they worked on that as well. But 
when it came to the finishing, you know, there's a lot of fine material that actually helps define the form. And the kids were really great for that. They'll be running around and just grabbing handfuls of sticks and bringing it to me as I'm stuffing it into the <laughs> canoe. Yeah, there was this one girl, she, she was so fast. I was going, wow, you're fast, but I found out she was a twin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like, how are you Double time, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> time, you're so happening? fast. You're faster than anyone. That's amazing. <laughs> Wait, I have a question, yeah. Leilon, about this, and I'm going to describe it for our listeners because it, what we're talking about here is a double-hulled canoe, and it's made out of these fine branches um, that are gray-ish. They've been dried, and they form the two hulls, and in the center, I believe, is bamboo, yeah? yeah well, um, the, the mass. The masts are bamboo, mm-hmm. and then the... Um, and then it's also got tea leaf, as you, as you mentioned, sort of rope, which is very significant, of course, um, in Hawaiian culture. But, um, you know, the vaivi, the guava is, is introduced, so it's invasive. So there's that, like, interesting juxtaposition between things that aren't from here and things that are. But the, the sticks themselves are, like, really fine mesh almost. I, when Clay described it to me, I was expecting something much, like, the logs to be bigger. Did you? Well, they're thicker than you think. They're okay. Like, this is like, big. It's hard to see. Yeah, 60 is this feet long. 60 feet. 60 oh feet long by 20 feet wide. Yeah. This is this is yeah, it's very huge. physical. It was a it was amazing. It was yeah. Like and it. see this yeah. tree, which is a K-pop tree, but mm. we used to have koa trees that big. Right. And okay. so this is a like a a thought. Well, you know, we we don't have trees to make voyaging no. canoes anymore. Right. And so this is that, and it's a whole. What happens when we don't have anything else to make this is what you have. canoes yeah. you know, to do some other diaspora from where, you Yeah, know. yeah, I love yeah. that. I guess what I'm wondering, uh, just more on the construction side, is did you have the design, like, drawn out and you said, hey, kids, this is where I'm headed, or did it evolve over time? Did they help you? Uh, understand what the final form was going to look like? Well, or? well it, I knew what the final form was going to look like, okay. but I'm the only one can do it because, yeah. you know, it, weaving something like this is not that easy. No. And then the other thing, <laughs> the other thing, <laughs> <laughs> understand. the other thing is, is that, um, yeah. that there are some people that were volunteering that are a different kind of brain. For example, I had a contractor that's worked, but he's only with right angles. Oh, he gosh. took ha- over half an hour to put in one stick and then oh he was God. very unsatisfied. <laughs> and I said, no, you need to sort sticks. You, you yeah, need yeah. to go on Sort sizes. Oh, and, I love you know, it. So I gave him a different job. But. So you had different personalities, and you had to figure out, okay, this is person is going to be good for this. This mm. person is going to be good for that. Take them off of that. That's that's yeah. amazing. No, and so yeah, but it, but you know, I I knew the uh, the basic form, and okay. then I had uh, guys that were good at chainsaws to do the heavy first cool. start. You know, cool. to to make it so it's structural and won't won't yeah. fall down. I wanted to make a canoe using disposable water bottles mm-hmm. because yeah that's yeah. that's a whole thing too and it's it's definitely uh yeah, it's a, it's 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 a big problem, but you know it's it is what it is, you know, and and so that that's the thing about about anything we do in life. I mean, I try to think about how all these big cycles of nature affect what we do and how we do things. 
to nature mm -hmm. that are very detrimental, which is a lot. And um, so anyways, I think about circular economies where you, you make something, you use it, and then you recycle it or re repurpose. You repurpose or whatever it is, but something local, so you don't have supply chain issues and all the, like the thing with the food and shipping and all that food insecurity stuff that we have. It's all interrelated. Yeah. Like with gardening, you know, I, I want organic gardening and composting and all these other things, soil building. So, I mean, in my property, I had huge compost piles and studying how things live because a lot of people, they think, well, I've got this plant and this plant and you put it together, but they never live in pots. Yeah. You know, they're living interconnected and they're interacting and yeah, competing and mm -hmm. you need to know all that and then they grow and then things have to change. Yeah. For example, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do a garden for someone that just wants to flip a house. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been asked, you know, and, you know, I, well, I won't do it. How many you know? projects do you think you turned down where someone's like, oh, we want to just beautify you? Do you feel, I guess the question really is, is like, do you feel like you have to really have a clear understanding about the client and the purpose? Exactly. And then, yes. then you decide? Yes. And then you're like, I don't yes want, or no? I, I don't want, I don't want them to go away unchanged. Never, you know, chase dollars. Or, we're doing is a, a condensation of nature. We're not. We can't really duplicate nature. Right. And uh, but especially when it's been cleared and altered and, and yeah. everything around is so uh, degraded. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I try to do is um, make something that is educational. It's easier to take care of on the long term is um, maybe maybe not so um, water thirsty. Mm -hmm. You know, plants are zoned according to their needs. And, yeah. and you know, if we can, if I can design gardens with just natural rainfall, that would be wonderful. It's not so easy anymore. Yeah. You know, we've got too many extremes of weather. And I was gonna say, when I used to go in the forest in the 60s, it was so much wetter. Mm. I mean, up at Moho, we used to have like at least the knee-high water that we used to go through, and now it's dry, yeah. you know? Native plants here in general, we have a, a limited palette of, of native species that are commercially available. Then they only have clones of those species and not the right. whole diversity of the genetics that right. are necessary to make it robust, uh, yeah, robust and maybe uh, resistant, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been doing a lot of experiments with seedlings of ohia to, to understand the ohia rust, mm -hmm. you know, and all these things and now it's, uh, you know, the rapid ohia death and all that problem, yeah. you know, but that way back we we're talking about the problems of ohia and uh, and then other, what I call gap species, because they don't get funding, they're not endangered, yeah. they're declining, yeah. but they're so important components of the yeah. forest. Mm -hmm. And sometimes more important than the ones that are endangered. But, you know, we used to weed in the forest. We used to, you know, I was gardening in the forest, yeah, totally. but only like a, instead of transporting or putting an exposure, you know, or anything like that, we were trying to just keep it from being overcrowned by yeah. vine, like uh, 
Picasso Flores to Barossa. You know? Yeah, totally. Oh my God, that one is miserable. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you say interesting you say that because the idea of gardening in the forest is put forth as like a criticism sometimes, yes. and I think it's more maybe the misunderstanding of how much work it takes to take care of these places and maybe it's getting harder because there's always more weeds <laughs> well like restoration projects you know they they a lot of times they clear the land they put things in rows they don't irrigate after their after the grant has run out yeah. and, and then it just that's it, it comes yeah. weeds again. It's, it becomes exactly what it was before and sometimes worse yeah and it's so it's not even that people don't have a long-term vision but the way that the money comes Funding through doesn't allow yeah, that, so. so yeah so that's another thing that i have about like grants that have deliverables that are so narrow and that certain people get the same grants but they don't, they're not creative enough to use the grants so that they can get grants to, to progress. Yes, yeah, yeah, to maybe, progress. Yeah. Can I ask an off the record question? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't, I don't want you to put my voice in your thing. But as a museum worker, I'm curious because I see this like big lawn, mm -hmm. and this is a space that I've been thinking about at our museum too. Mm -hmm. Of wouldn't it be great to like rewild some of the landscaping around the museum? But also, gathering is really important in a museum to have spaces where people can gather. So, I'm just curious, like, if in your perfect world. Mm -hmm. What, what would be here, or do you think that this is... Well, we've been thinking about this for a long okay. time. So, yes, we wanted to, you know, the, the Hawaiian way of managing land was the ahupua, from the mountains to the sea. And so, so you know, they protect the water from the uplands all the way to the ocean. And so there there's components of the flora and fauna that, that are in this thing, so if you can orient the you know, whatever plantings we do as we, and tell the stories about certain dry dry forests, the mesic forests, you know, the strand vegetation. Yeah, this is that idea you're just talking about is like the diversity, capturing this diversity of the commons. I'm obsessed with that idea myself, just thinking about the forms, the different sizes. I mean, Ali is kind of a classic example. Yeah, yeah, and it's not, it's indigenous. So yeah. there, there's many, many, you know, there's a lot, the age, H3, they planted Ali from, well, Dodonea from, from yeah. California. Yeah. Do you ever go into the Atherton garden? No. Let me, let me take you there real quick. Yeah, no worries. Getting my Bachelor of Fine Arts at UH. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I got interested in botany for some reason. And so I took a, a botany from Charlie Lamoureux. Yeah. Oh, wow. Incredible. So that all of these, this was all quarried here. Yeah. Yes, all hand, hand done, hand cut. Well, and I just love that integration of the plants and the pohaku because it's not what I think most people when they look at a garden may not think about the care that goes into that aspect of it. During the course of building this, I had hand carried all of this with a oh. hand truck and so each one has been personally moved. <laughs> Wow. But you know, we needed to do it. That's uh, Pracharya Lauriana, which is a good story about that. Yeah. You know, back, way back in the day, um, there was a story about, you know, there's the in Foster Gardens, there's the, the Pracharya in the cage, mm -hmm. that Hillebrand had, mm -hmm. that was collected in Uwanu. Okay. Okay, so this is that species. But one day I got a call from Joel Lau, mm -hmm. and he says, is there any glabrous uh, Pritchardi in the Koalas? I said, no, but there is in the Wainais. 
but not Nicole Love. And so I said, well, we see we see this thing on this cliff, and and is that interesting to you? And I said, yes, I'm gonna call Don Hodel. And within a week, Don was here, and we went up to look at those palms, and it turned out to be what Don is calling Petrarchia Laureana. But it's so much bigger than Laureana from Molokai, right. which is so much smaller. So something I, else. I, it, well, maybe the diversity within a species, but it could be something else. Yeah. Is it something different? You know, I tried to get yeah. genetic material to Christine Bacon. Yeah, years ago. You know, yeah, and so she actually showed us how promiscuous yeah. Charlie is in cultivation. Yeah, can you can you tell us what this looked like before? Was it all just like clean growth? It was it was a scruffy lawn that was not irrigated, okay. and uh, they had big royal palm. They had a lot of big unnecessary plants that had no connection to the museum's oh, mission. Okay. And so what we wanted to do here was introduce more uh, plants that were uh, important to the Hawaiian culture. Mm-hmm you know, ethnobotanically interesting, the canoe plants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the hula, le, le, they can do the hula performance. Plants are plants. very healthy and happy. Yeah, yeah. They do. And I love the terracing too. I mean, I think like to describe for our, our listeners, there's like these three, four tiers of, you know, gently sloping, uh, kind of like an amphitheater, mm-hmm. you know, with like the contours of the land are all sort of distinctly, outlined by the basalt curves, which are beautiful. Yeah, and you know meanders are like natural, like a river flows. How long have you been um, at the bishop doing this work? You mentioned you've had a relationship. From the age of 10, yeah. But you were never, this is what I found out, that you you never worked with him. No. You've been sort of like an advisor. Advisor, researcher. Yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, helper. Did herbarium, collected herbarium specimens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Out in the wild. I just think it's so awesome what you're doing, and it's really inspiring to see the relationship between the plants that you chose for that garden and then the... um, cultural belongings that are in the museum that's yeah. just so well you know what's so really awesome. really I'm, I'm fortunate is because the the curator when I did this canoe mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. Uh, I was at Zippy's mm-hmm. and I drew um, I drew a real quick sketch of my idea and they accepted it Oh wow! Yeah, so it was. It's like so they had faith. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know? so and I said, this is so I, I, That's what I mean. Yeah, it's amazing. And even even the later curator Nina Tonga mm-hmm. from uh, uh, from New Zealand. Yeah, I'll tell She 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 told me that. I kind of changed the way she wants to curate. Oh, wow. How so? Well, because it was like so, un- there were so many unknowns, you know, mm-hmm. with with me. I had to, I had to get permission to harvest the, the strawberry guava. Yeah. And then I had to find uh, transportation for the strawberry guava. Oh, wow. I had to organize volunteers right. to, to sort everything. And it wasn't like um, they normally organize volunteers. Right. Well, you let preschoolers. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Most artists wouldn't be open to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, on the curator side of things, Uh I don't want to sound mean here, but I completely agree with what that curator said. But I think it takes 
working with the right artist. Yes. Oh, because yeah. Because it's a personality thing when you can kind of go in a different direction and leave things really open and free and um, yeah. not all artists can work that way. Yeah. I guess we need to hear about how you saved the kahuna. And, or if you want to talk about it or no. Well, I, back in the day when Sacred Falls was was uh, open yeah. to the public, yeah. I, we went there and I met him there. And mm. His name was John Naoni. And um, we were crossing a stream and it started rising really fast. And oh. He wasn't doing well. Uh, oh. So I just grabbed him and, and hauled him to the banks. And uh, then the water rose and it was like roaring through there, and then um, and then it and then it ceased, and then uh, and then it was after that he gave me my coin. Amazing. Yeah. And did the, you know the him? name of the valley, which mm-hmm. is Kaliwa'a? Okay. Kaliwa'a, uh, uh, which means um, leaky canoe. That also, you know, um, I went up, well, I was going hiking with John Obata and mm-hmm. Ron Fensemacher, Daniel Chung, mm-hmm. and we were going to go hiking in the Wainai Mountains, and it was raining so hard that we decided, mm-hmm. well, let's try another place, so we went to Sacred Falls area. Okay. And uh, on the right side, you can go up above the falls, and so we went there, and then when we got up to the top with the, over the falls, it was so torrential and the, the falls were raging and the ground was shaking. And a week later, they had that big rock fall with, in Mother's Day that killed killed eight people. I remember that, yeah. yeah and then they closed Sacred, Sacred falls, falls, yeah. But I was there a week before that rock fall and it was amazing, I mean, because the whole earth was shaking. Wow, that's. And did you know the man that you whose life you saved, or he just happened yeah, to John be there? Naoni. Okay, so yeah. you knew him. You guys had I planned did. to meet there. Yeah, I, I, I just see. met him that day. Oh, you met him that day. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Just happened to. Just happened. And you happened to yeah. just save his life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, serendipity, as you say, um, with some of these meetings, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. So we're headed now to your niece's house? Yes. Come over here. Okay. Here, lift this one up. You can tell the, the size and density. Just to give you an idea. You're kidding me. Just that little stone. But that's the hardest, toughest of the basalt. Are you using machines then on the... Yes, on pneumatic cuts? tools and diamond saws and... Mm. Yeah. So yes, you have to because it's so hard. I mean, so it has this that? oxidized layer. Mm-hmm. So it's got chemical weathering and and so it's, I like it at the skin of the stone. Mm-hmm. So it would have been this would kind of be exposed dike rock, is that? Yes, yes. Uh, but only in certain areas you find it, and um, and so. When I met Osama Noguchi and he, I was doing cut clay stones. Mm. <laughs> I mean, cut clay sculptures at that time. And then he asked me if, if I ever did things in stone. I said, I'd like to, but there's no no stone quarry here for sculpture rock. So I, so that's when I learned about kapa'a and all the, and then I just started doing it. You know, so like I try to understand the material by doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've never seen basalt, or I guess I maybe, maybe never noticed, 
basalt that has this like mirror like yeah well it takes a lot of polishing it's really hard to do like how many hours of polishing for this it took me uh i would say to carve out the hollow mm -hmm. and polish it took about a month because you have to go through like 16 pads. Um, yeah. So 50 is the roughest that they come. And okay. it's all with water and diamonds and, and pneumatic. Well, we're so glad to get your story recorded for us. The people that we talk to have deep relation with the land. And, and the way that expresses itself is in all different ways, through science or through art in this case. So it's, it's, and then I think when we realized how much overlap we had and how much overlapping interest, it was like, wow, okay, we know all the same people in both the science and the arts, but you've been at it for so, so long, like since the 60s or 70s, really? Yeah, and not like officially. Yeah, but you know, back in the day, um, the state, and the feds even would argue with us about saving native species mm -hmm. because, for example, Dr. Lyon was into introducing things to reforest for watershed yeah. issues. Yeah, yeah. Um, stuff like that. You mm -hmm. know, but, but yeah, some really nasty um, invasives were introduced at that time by, right. yeah, by the millions, actually. Seedlings from the air. Yeah. I mean, not seedlings, but seeds were... Did you know about that happening at that time? Were you aware, or was this later? It when, was later, yeah. Uh -huh, when you became aware of like, of oh, that specific thing. I knew there were bad trees in the forest, and I, I could see the progression of things moving into the higher elevations yeah. as time went on. Because, like I say, I've seen the forest in the 60s, and they're so different from now. Even, you know, like the Waianae Mountains, for example, down by the contour trail, there was a fog that was there every morning, and that's disappeared from like about 79 or so, it disappeared. And then there's, that was a time of a great drought, and lots of snails would be dead, freshly wow. dead native snails would be on the ground. And that, like I say, I've seen a lot of snail species disappear. I mean, it's incredible to me even thinking about how many of those pockets still are hanging on in that. I mean, I know that place where you're talking about in the Waianae's and it's when you, you, you know, so much of that forest is quite dry and then there's still these pockets where it's kind of wet, quite wet unexpectedly, but I'm sure it's been big changes. What's interesting about, um, like you say, these pockets, like for example, the plateau that you, you know about, when we first went in there, it was so different from after management and uh you know like i say with gardening you shouldn't clear things that are actually protecting the environment and even though even if it's in uh, uh alien species and so this is like you know how grants are gotten and and they get grants to clear certain things and it gets done and i i understand that but yeah i remember seeing countless juvenile snails and microspecies that were in the leaf litter and that was all cleared. We found out for the first time that a lot of these snails live in dead twigs. Yeah, and those were all... <laughs> yeah, so Just like a little like that. nerdy question, or in the weeds at least with this stuff, I'm curious if you've seen or noticed at that time, because I know some of the ground snails appear to be affected by the game birds, and have you seen did you notice a shift in abundance of, that, of those things while you were over the, over that time? Not in certain parts of the forest because 
a lot of the game birds prefer like open fields mm-hmm. and they get a lot of their fodder or whatever they you know whatever feed their grains or whatever right. and and of course there's the cattle ranch down below that had a lot of feed that the game birds also gravitated towards right. and of course they had wild peacocks but yeah not not so much as far as game birds in infiltrating because so, a lot of these places are really steep as well mm-hmm. and the game birds tended to like more open flatter ground but you know you could always see an exception to things i mean yeah i've seen pigs amazingly on very steep terrain yeah you think wow what's he doing up here yeah even though they're a lot of times you'll see them down in the valleys uh they they roam in the herds well i think we're still only really understanding the changes because of all that lowland stuff like you said the grazing which is not happening and to the extent that it used to be and Mm -hmm. other ways in which things are changing and all that crazy agricultural kind (laughs) of It's this very place specific, but off Kunia Road, right? That kind of, those developments in there and how they're oh, kind yeah. of hard to imagine what those changes outside the forest might have meant for for stuff more Malka. Yeah, even the Contour Trail. We used to find snails below the Contour oh, right. Trail, and now it's a tangle of falling eucalypt and so dry. Mm-hmm. It's so dry, dry, dry. Yeah. yeah, but I like to look at broad concepts or big picture stuff. And then if I find details out about it that, that's helpful, then that, that, those are things I really notice. Because, you know, with science, they, a lot of the experiments they do cannot be reproduced. Like, you know, they do these scientific studies, and, but they alter the environment, so you can never get the information that was originally gathered. Can you give us an example? What do you mean by that? Well, for example, say they're doing a study where they mark and release, you know, that that kind of study where they cleared away all the undergrowth and then because they cleared the study to make study area to make it easier to study yeah then it's altered it starts drying out right because you don't have the the lower component of the of the area you have maybe the bushes and the little trees that that house the snails Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but maybe you don't have the ground covers that are actually protecting because you know when we did these um moisture meter measurements at the ground level and uh, as we go up in in elevation and, and height um, in the tree it's diff- it differs you know so there's and there's ground moisture and all these other things which are very important but people aren't really studying that much and i've i've found so many so many snails on alien species and real close to the ground but when you mention it it it's not like uh, it's accepted very well. So yes, it's difficult. And like I say, the published studies get the most attention. Mm -hmm. And then once someone gets an idea about certain things and they go down a certain path, they kind of box themselves in. But, you know, it's good for certain things, but then not so good on the the big picture things and the things going forward. Like if you're going to monitor an area and you cut trails, you know, your avenues for weed, right. invasions, mm-hmm. landslides, and right. I've seen all of it. Yeah. You know, right after they cut a new trail or they cut a trail to study a certain thing on a slope, and then the landslides takes away the whole thing. Yeah, it's all clademia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as someone who is 
really interested in rare things that I've painted too, you know, and to bring them, like as you, the world's attention, right? Have you ever done any projects, like for snails, for example? Have you ever thought like, oh, I want to do this? Or is it more for you an expression of a feeling or a recreation of place? Like, does that ever, does, do rare things ever come up in the narrative of your work ever? Or is it well, everything wider is than that? endangered in a way. Right. I mean, because like I say, endangered species are just a component of the whole picture, right? I may do something that focuses on an endangered species, but not a particular endangered species, mm-hmm. because I, I just think of endangered species as like the nail in the coffin yeah. analogy, you know, yeah. and then, or, or nail in the boat, holding the boat together, and, and then finally you take the one that... I, I guess the reason I ask that is because as artists working on the land, you know, there's this like grief. And there's also that, of course, with people who are biologists who are on the land too. And sometimes there's no place for that to go, right? That, that like that sadness that you feel for the loss. And it's like, well, how does that, you know, express itself? Does it express itself in art or does it not necessarily need to? It's sort of more just calling attention to the bigger. The bigger. Well, I, my art expresses hope really. Yeah, because that's it. even though, you know, cause like when you do a restoration site, you don't go into a restoration thinking, oh, this is it, you know, we're, <laughs> you know, we're, you know it, it, what, what I'm hoping is that they do things that are successful and, and, you know, it didn't work out this time and like, hopefully you don't do the same thing so that it, it also fails. I'm hoping, you know, that we get wiser as we get go along because we're losing so much. But there's always hope because if you don't have hope, then the kids won't have anything to latch on to. Oh, why try? Yeah. You know, so this is my whole thing, you know. I've seen so much and and there's, but there's a lot more to lose still. It's ever increasing. Uh, But, you know, there are stories of, of hope and uh, you know I don't try to focus on one thing but I want people to understand the consequences of our actions mm-hmm. and then inject some kind of hope sure. you know like that's why sometimes I have these things that you know like female form where it's a, like a womb or a mm-hmm. seed germinating yeah. you know I mean it's it's in there in the form I don't like. I don't try to be didactic about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I I try to use metaphors. Mm-hmm. So so going back to like W. S. Merwin, you know, when I met him, I started thinking more in terms of instead of doing these long narrative pieces, I wanted to condense as simple as I can mm-hmm. because people are they have no short attention. Yeah. They don't, they don't want to do these reports, you know. Yeah. Which, our drudgery in a way, you know, <laughs> yeah. and and uh, I I enjoy it, but it's not something for everyone, and right. I'm not gonna, you know. But what is that thing that will inspire hope? That's a trick, you know. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And I love that it's yours is open to interpretation because everyone can come to it with you know with their own feeling and response as opposed to like as you say didactic like okay we're, we're teaching this specific thing about this whatever it is you know you're you have the abstract forms and the gardens. I was gonna ask actually about the gardens has that intention of 
either pulling people into the spaces or communicating like hope for what is still out there and what's worth, you know, obviously it's worth protecting, but has that, have you become more intentional with that in when you're designing garden spaces or has it always been there and you Well, it's always been there, but it, I'm more interested in, in um, designing public spaces versus mm. gated communities, nice. yeah, things like that, which I've done a lot of, I mean, but you know, it, uh, land and real estate are a big deal here. <laughs> so, so um, you know, if I can influence the client and say, wow, you know, these native species have value here in, you know, because I did a lot of work in Kona and, you know, the old lava fields of Hualalai and all that area yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, the Four Seasons area. But no one can see it, you know, but it's a lot of native species and we were doing things early on so you know we learned a lot but the thing is is everyone has to learn see because i can design a garden but that's just the beginning yeah you know a garden is ever evolving it's like it's a microcosm of nature you know and so like these macrocosm microcosm issues you hawaii is a microcosm for the world you know, we have the island metaphor, canoe metaphor. Everything's got to be on that canoe, right? That's why I love this canoe metaphor. I see. You yeah. Know? I mean, everything you need, everyone's got to get along. Otherwise, they're out of the canoe or everyone dies. So that's why I'm saying I try to be more poetic when I'm doing everything I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at, at the same time with gardens, you, I want to be practical. Yeah. Because... Yeah. You want it to survive and yeah because you, you know. see what Clyde is doing he's yeah. retired and he's he's out there <laughs> he's overqualified for the job really you know, <laughs> that kind of deal but he's only one person he can't right. you know and so I I would love the powers that be in the museum for example to mm-hmm. get more committed to the people that are actually going to do the work yeah. Uh, yeah. because they're key to the success of these things and these bigger issues mm-hmm. and influencing you know it's one thing to teach um teachers to teach others you know enrich them but then if they're doing actually the work uh, like in a garden then they'll understand why restoration and and even people that work in conservation if they garden and they understand the work and the long-term commitment of what that really means you know, I'm always into, I'd rather do something smaller and have it work mm-hmm. than do these large things and have it fail. Yeah. But you build on your success. You know, mm-hmm. you do that, it becomes an equilibrium, and then you move on. Well, once the ecosystem's in equilibrium, or at least some sort of balance, it kind of helps take care of itself. Yeah. You know, it's got ground covers, the weeds are suppressed, Mm -hmm. there's a canopy, it protects from the harsh photo period, things Mm -hmm. like that. I mean, it's all, like I say, very interconnected. You know, the transpiration will make some clouds and, you know, all this. It's the water vapor thing. I think it's really important (laughs) for people to hear because a lot of folks that do restoration, I think, wonder that, right? If you five years, six years into a site that you're trying to convert back from some weedy thing to uh, these native components. And they, it's hard to say or identify clearly, like, what is the end point? You know, it's some of it might be constant maintenance. So, I mean, that question, I think, is still 
it's still out there and really present for people doing the work. Yeah. Well, one thing that I found really um, enlightening in my life is like when I was in Brazil, there was, most of the workers are illiterate. You know, they're illiterate, but they can be geniuses. And so the uh, one, you know, Roberto was making this road out of granite cobbles that were split granite pavers. And we came across this boulder of granite, the size of a, probably a Volkswagen bu uh, bug. And this old guy with a sharpened rebar and a ball peen hammer would be tapping on this boulder all day from dark to dark. And he made pavers to make, wow. keep continuing instead of going around the right. boulder, you know. But, but you know, it, it's one of those things that um, you find out that there's value in these people that, that they know a yeah, lot. I mean, because it's like you have to read the stone to split the stone properly. Yeah, and here he is with the rudest tools and just hand labor. I mean, I've seen huge trees moved you know, with old pieces of lumber and, uh, and, uh, and just uh, pulley, you know. Well, I think you also bring up a really important part of this, of the value of the work and, mm -hmm. and that appreciation for how long it takes to do this thing, how much work goes into it, and just the need for, like you said, even for Bishop Museum, I don't want to call them out, but as an example to recognize, right, that there's, that what it takes to maintain these places, what it takes. And then obviously, if you value what the way in which you've transformed that landscape, even in that small example there, that native garden, uh, and then the work it takes to, to keep it going. That's what I'm hoping to see, you know, especially we're always obviously in this like actual historical context of Maui and kind of seeing what happens when you stop caring for I mean not that like sugarcane was caring for the land but like nothing is being done in so much of these places um, and you know fires just happens to be this most very immediate obviously incredibly destructive horrific consequence of that but um, you know I'm really hopeful that we can see a bigger picture view that oh we need more folks doing this kind of work that will carry forward this knowledge and well see the thing too is I I I'm not a practical person in certain ways like I I have these big <laughs> ideas about how you know like I say circular economies yeah. Yeah. and all these things that that will help sustain us and be self-sufficient mm -hmm. and all the things that are necessary to the residents yeah. of, of not the ones that are transient or ones yeah. that don't really love the land the ones that that need to love the land need mm -hmm. to live here mm -hmm. and uh, long term maybe generational not yeah. necessarily have degrees or anything no. whatever it is mm -hmm. if they have the passion to save something mm -hmm. it will happen you know I, I see a lot of hope still yeah and you know? you've done it on a small scale and shown such like aloha through action so that's kind of like what we've been talking about with our practitioners and others is just like that aloha is defined as action actionable work which is the this garden the gardens that you have restored even in the smallest way and that is that's so powerful there's yeah. so much power in that you know yes and no because <laughs> you know, i mean well, well what it is well, is people educational forget, you, know, you know people forget they don't sure. know, they, if they don't hear me speaking or i'm not out there all the time and mm -hmm. you know my thing is i like to do the hard work as well as the cerebral yeah, kind of thing you it. know mm -hmm. um so 
and that's very educational to me like like if I move a rock I want to yeah. physically move the rock because it teaches me something right. Right, right. you know and and uh, yeah I see less and less of that unfortunately but there are people that probably will be able to step in if if they catch the fever early enough yeah. and that's why I kind of yeah. given up on the people that are already in their own box you know <laughs> um, but there's the kids you know like yeah. when I when I interface with kids and I'm not going to get into early childhood education but I definitely want to to be a catalyst for that kind of idea yeah so that so that even though I'm doing my art for adults as a you know I I I'm looking to the children you know, if I can, if there's something in what I do that helps that generate, the next generation, at least not lose so much, you know, because everything starts accelerating, you know, and then the, you know, the tipping point kind of issues. Like I said, we, I've been on the outside kind of like 40 years easily, you know. Things are getting better and things are getting worse, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah, but we got to think about these things because totally. we only you know, Hawaii is unique, and every sp spot of Hawaii is unique. So it's it's a multi-dimensional kind of thing. Like well, mm -hmm. when I think about history, you know, I think about like closely packed spheres, and the story, the history is like you get little tangents on here and there and it's going but every point is an infinite thing yeah. that's it yeah. you know and that's why it's so difficult and but it's so interesting at the same yeah. time it's hard to hold it all <laughs> it's hard to hold it all but I mean it, the more we learn and the less we know yeah. it's wonderful in, in its own confusion you know I mean it I that's what I get excited about I mean I that I don't know so much so when I hear someone being so adamant about something I just say, well, you know, that could be. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we so appreciate all the time and all, everything you've. Is, was there anything else, Clay, that you wanted to ask? I don't know. We've been, we've been like all so <laughs> far distant and back full circle. So, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I did a whole show on this word called palimpsest you know hmm. palimpsest no okay palimpsest is when you have well back in the days when they had parchment the, mm -hmm. i mean a real animal skin yeah it was very expensive and valuable and they were making their texts and drawings mm. but sometimes they recycled them so they would erase that original thing okay but there's always a trace of what was there it was before. there yeah and so these so this is the thing about about my art. I show the chainsaw marks. I show yeah. the yeah. original crust yeah. of the stone. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, as you're going mm -hmm. into the layers, it's like um, uh, like chopping a tree, and you see the rings as each year is telling the story. Yeah. And, you know, the, all these dendrochronology kind of stuff. Or there's always so when I work in wood and. It, all these things are coming into play mm -hmm. and then same thing with stone you know you're you're tr I'm trying to teach them about the origin of this island or this is the so you know there's all the and so you know what when Isamu Noguchi asked me about do you ever do this in stone I did want to do it but I, I had to teach myself or go through a lot of people that that 
had done it before. Know, knew a little yeah. more than I right. did. But mm-hmm. a lot of it was like just doing it and just seeing Figuring it. Oh, it did that didn't work. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so much of art though, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> it's very experimental. And, yeah. you know, but life, I find, is experimental. Yes. We are a big experiment. Yeah. You know, Definitely. I mean, we don't know. I mean, I've been exposed to DDT because we... I was a kid, you know, you're oh, running through yeah, the, the clouds of DDT in fields. the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, we spent seeing to clean India ink off of oh, the yeah. uh, drawings for landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, uh, fiberglass and resins and using acetone, yeah. chlorine gas, you know, <laughs> all these things. I mean, I've, but I'm still here. You yeah, know? That's I, thought I, was, I thought I was going to die a lot <laughs> younger. Oh, <man. laughs> you know? But, you know, and falling off trees and everything. I think I don't have the fear of death because I, I've been close to it several times. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very liberating. Yeah. I and, you know, sure. people are so afraid. I, you know, they're afraid they're being replaced. You know, all these things. Fear is, it's good for certain things. But I think, I think if kids had released their fear of dying... Uh, or or and and just have a passion for living. Living, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I th- I think that's a good thing. Yeah, so that's why I like, love the idea of injecting hope into everything that I'm doing. I mean, I always experience negativity. I mean, it's always around. I mean, it's it's like, but it doesn't do me any good to go down that road. You know, I mean, does no one any good to go down that road? I mean. You know, I'm so anti-war. I mean, I, I want people to get along, but they don't, Yeah. you know, and there's always conflict. But I do want to avoid war and um, all these very negative things. Um, and bringing it up won't, won't help anything, really. I mean, it, it, it's educational. Like, I love to learn about why people do what they do. Or, you know, I know I know a lot of it's driven by greed, right? They want to extract something and have something. But, you know, when I'm in the forest at the top, and it's an endemic forest, and, and I see things that are just still there and wonderful, I mean, that's very renewing. But it's not the forest I knew in the past, and I'm not going to bring that back, really. Right. You know, but I do want kids to see, you know, if, even if it's the last tree, of native species I want them to be able to see that Mm -hmm. you know a lot of times even with conservation people it's us against them but you know I don't want to preach to the choir I want to inspire people that don't think like me yeah Yeah, that's yeah that's the thing you know that's that's a real challenge that's where you need to be yeah yeah that's the real challenge that is so I don't have the answer, but I do what I do, and then hopefully something will come of it. You know, I don't know what that is. I have, I have all these ideas of of books, but they do talk about endangered or disappeared species, extinct, um, because I've lived them. Yeah. You know, yeah. I've I've seen them, and I've seen them go, mm-hmm. and I don't want to see them go, but they do go, and. Uh, and I get so thrilled when I do see something that's endemic and precious like that. Mm-hmm. But it's not for me. 
if I could not see them and have them survive, that'd be perfect. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I think about that a lot, too. <laughs> I would give for that. You know, same thing with right. culture, you know, certain uh-huh. cultures. Like I say, yeah. I'm half Okinawan. I'm getting yeah, into well, my Okinawan culture now. Yeah. But that was devastated. Totally devastated. So most of the uh, Liu Chu and cultural things are recorded in the Ming Dynasty stuff yeah. because they had a close relationship with the Ming Dynasty and and so there's original documents but other the stuff that was in Okinawa and the Ryukyus they got bombed up and, you know or otherwise uh, destroyed but the people are still there there's still things that are out there they have the same issues with the Hawaiian culture and the Okinawan culture mm-hmm. um, yeah. well it's part of it right like the, all these species that we're talking about it's part of this place and so either if whatever you can preserve in the sense of the things that have been lost and understanding you know the, what we can learn say from you who have seen these things or even drawing these things is still such part of still what's out there right it was all from the same and we're fortunate that they're islands because insular means smaller and it's not like a continental, you know, thing where, and then we're isolated because of our ocean. And that makes it so even more special, but it's also more vulnerable. That's why, you know, what I try to do these, these metaphors, because uh, if I get too detailed or too narrative about uh, my art anyway, find that um, uh, it's interesting to some people, but I want people to to look at something that's more abstract yeah. and if they can get that yeah that's it then 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 they then they can be excited about a lot of things yeah exactly i love that well thank you so much leland it's been a wonderful interview um you've so much to, for us to um, think through but uh yeah i just couldn't be happier than just have spent that time with you yeah thanks so much for taking the time and connecting with us and yeah tali was very excited too she has so much love for you yeah yeah well see it's just one of those things i mean if i had never met her in the forest who knows right (laughs) right it's true